0: Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature Podcast. How can St. Paul emphasize the importance of weakness while boasting that his own preaching is a demonstration of the spirit and of power? How can he preach weakness from a position of strength? Is Paul contradicting himself? Why would someone proclaiming the crucified Christ claim to do so with power? What part does Roman culture play in the content of the gospel? That's right, no need to clean the wax out of your ears. I did not say, how do we separate Roman culture from the true meaning of the gospel? I said, what part does Roman culture play in the content of the gospel? Richard and I discussed 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Boulos. And this is
1: Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 103 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Today we're moving on to chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. It's an important chapter because it uses a lot of critical terminology that is too often co-opted by religious scholars for agendas other than the content of the text itself. And
1: this is a focus we have here at the Bible is Literature podcast to read things in context. I think what can happen is when you take a phrase like the mind of Christ or wisdom of God and you just go and talk about them, you end up with problems. Or words
0: like mystery.
1: Right. You have to see them in context and how they function. You know, you can't understand a word without the verse. You can't understand the verse without the chapter. And you can't understand the chapter without the book, etc. So we want to expound on what these words mean, but in the context of the chapter. And that's why we spend so much time and effort going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse.
0: The other thing that chapter two of 1 Corinthians does is it puts a stake in the ground for a longer discussion about power and a longer demonstration about what power is for scripture and how power is important and useful. And it does the same with its paradigm for what a teacher is and what a disciple is and what their roles are. And it packs punch. It's very important. People read 1 Corinthians and they stop at chapter one and... They develop an attitude that worships weakness, and they elevate weakness, and there's even a kind of cult of weakness, I think, in the church, where they think that being a wet rag is what the gospel is calling for. So far,
1: what we've seen in 1 Corinthians, it's not about strength and weakness per se, but about division and unity and having a united
0: household. And the question about weakness and strength is not about whether power is bad or power is evil or strength is evil, which is the way people in their binary modes of thinking in Western culture tend to frame the discussion, right? We've talked about this before. Wisdom is the ability to hold contradictions together. But what's more common in public discourse about these questions is to say this is right and that is wrong. But that kind of binary or bipolar thinking is destructive and divisive and it's the seed of ideology at the end of the day. And that's exactly what Paul is fighting here. But when he talks about power and weakness, he's deconstructing this binary mode of thinking. And he's saying, look... If you are for one or the other, you are for yourself. You have to be able to say, it's not power that's evil or weakness that's good. It's my behavior that's evil. So how can I dismantle my power and submit my weakness to God's weakness and God's power? And what Paul does in the letter, and it starts to happen here in chapter 2, is he shows you In a language that Romans understand that power is not only functionally useful, it's part of the content of the gospel, and this is almost impossible for American Christians to accept because they are so self-content in their belief that power is ontologically evil.
1: Right, I think you hit on a really important point, Father, by saying that it's not strength or weakness that's the problem, because... God can use both strength and weakness. The question is, does the strength or the weakness follow according to the will of God, which we understand from Torah? Does it flow from Torah? Does it flow from God's instruction? And this is the important thing. The strength and the weakness are always going to be there. But how do you use them according to God's will when we say that unity of the community is the main thing? How can they
0: be used for that purpose? Weakness? functions correctly when it strips the human ego of its own selfish initiative so that power can function correctly as a mechanism of the will of God. But if, as in the case of Boaz, who we discussed last year in our series on Ruth, if you manifest the will of God with power and force, It's a beautiful thing, it's a correct thing. And it's so important in our culture because so much of the suffering of our disenfranchised youth stems from the absence of principled authority figures. You have kids, as we've said, who are disconnected, alienated, seduced by violent ideology. There's no way out of that situation except for something or someone who's more powerful than the violent ideology that they worship to come and show them a different path. I was just listening to a podcast done by the SETI Institute, Big Picture Science, and they talked about the role that fear plays in human biology. It has a role. Even fear isn't good or bad. It's just a functional mechanism that can be used for good and used for destruction. So you have an alienated male who's out there on an island thinking about the fact that none of the girls in college liked him and how evil women are and going on these websites that talk about how bad women are and how you have to fight back and then he thinks about getting a gun. What's missing from that scenario is an authority figure, male or female, who can step into that reality and break it with something that is more fearful than the thing that he is clinging to. Because when people cling to ideology, they're clinging to, in some ways, a programmed biological response to fear that feels as good as happiness. Because fear at the end of the day is a way to prolong your life. So when an authority figure steps in and threatens someone who's despondent in such a way that they're more afraid of the teacher, and they get more from that fear than they do from some sick ideology, it's hopeful. Stories
1: about the saints in the early church use the image of the soldier who is martyred. And this is significant, not necessarily on a historical level, but on a literary level. Because you have a soldier who, when he lays down his life, for the teaching, for the gospel, he doesn't wimp out. He is still just as strong and just as powerful by sacrificing himself. All these virtues that the Romans would have of nobility and all this kind of thing, it's actually laid down for the sake of following the teaching and no longer using power against others, but using the power to show the strength of the
0: teaching of the Lord. Which is the correct use of power? And this is the point. So Paul in 1 Corinthians And this, again, is scandalous for American Christians, because they really believe in the truth of egalitarianism, but egalitarianism, like everything else, is functional. All cultures understand that there's a time to deal with your child as a brother, and there's a time to deal with your child as a son or a daughter. It's not either or. These relationships are dynamic and need to be in order for relationships to be healthy. It's just how it goes. So when you say, no, 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 the right way is to be weak. No, 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 the right way is to be egalitarian. You are forfeiting wisdom. And what Paul is doing is saying, look, there's something good about Roman culture. There's something correct about Roman culture that aligns with the way the Lord operates in the Old Testament. He is a patriarch. He is a sheikh. He speaks with authority and people do what he says. And guess what? That's exactly what the paterfamilias is in Roman society. So just as we turned the table of fellowship into the table of Passover, the table where the Torah was preached and explained, we're going to turn the Roman household into a church. And we are going to use the mechanism of Roman power as it is expressed in the person of the paterfamilias. But instead of ascribing it to the paterfamilias, we're going to ascribe it, to the will of God which is inscribed in this letter. And this is why we call the priest father. The priest is the paterfamilius in church, very obviously. But if not the paterfamilius functionally, because that's Paul's role, the priest would be the economos. And that's even a title they use in Greek for clergy. It's a title that's assigned, the head slave. But the head slave is a proxy for the paterfamilius. That's how the system works. There's a pecking order. But the authority comes from the Father of Jesus. And the will at each level of the hierarchy is the same will that proceeds from the Father, which means whoever speaks that will is to do so with authority. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Again, the power that Paul is manifesting in 1 Corinthians doesn't proceed from human wisdom or human rhetoric. He is speaking to, again, the Roman household where, like the American household, which is addicted to CNN and Fox News and to empty commercialism, we don't get excited anymore at the content of what is said, we get excited about the way it's said. In an American household, if you see a movie or a television program or a discussion that's broadcast and it sounds nice to you and you're entertained, you don't stop to ask what it means. And the Romans were the same way. They used to hire rhetoricians to come and just entertain by speaking for hours and saying nothing. And people would clap because it was pretty. This is not what Paul is bringing. He's bringing something substantive that has weight and that has power, exactly because it doesn't come from a Roman philosopher or a rhetorician. It's not about the flash. It's about the content,
1: but not just content and speech. One thing that Paul always emphasizes is what he has undergone, the actions that he's taken. But also, as we've said many times before, Paul is trying to reprogram. He is trying to have you understand power in a different way, that power is also the power to give up one's personal strength, the power to give up the ego, the power to submit to others. This is a kind of power
0: which he uses to deconstruct your sense of power. It's the power of the will of God. It's the power of the instruction itself, meaning that Paul himself might not even be able to do with power what you just said but right now his job isn't to do anything except to announce with authority this power and that's why it continues he's proclaiming to you the testimony of god for i determined to know nothing among you except jesus christ and him crucified here is the ultimate demonstration of power
1: jesus christ crucified what are you saying about power right jesus christ crucified it's always about jesus christ crucified as the ultimate image of power
0: he is preaching the weakness of god with power this is the point he is speaking as the head of the household and he is ordering all things according to the content of god's will which is the crucifixion of jesus and importantly
1: not the resurrection of Jesus. Notice that it's Christ crucified. Crucified. That's the image because Jesus had a choice, according to the gospel, does he bring in the armies to crush the Romans or does he submit in power to being crucified? And by giving up his power, it wasn't in order to be a doormat. He gave up his power to show what true power is, which is following God's will, which is beyond human understanding. This is the difference. He willingly gives up his power for the sake of giving to others
0: through his own life. And we all know and we have countless examples of how tyrants are more afraid of poetry than they are of guns and tanks and violence. We've talked about this. The tyrant knows how to deal with violence, but he's at a loss when someone writes a poem that undermines his power. How can you fight something that's a mystery to you? It's a big question. And this is what Paul is doing. He's coming at the mighty upon the earth with this puzzle they can't grasp, which is how he could wield weakness as power and speak with the same gravitas or more gravitas than just an authoritarian father in a typical Roman household. Well, you look at the recent execution of the famous Shiite cleric in Saudi
1: Arabia. Who was
0: actually a moderate. If you look at the content of what the guy said, he was very open to dialogue with other cultures, other religions.
1: But they had to bring the sword against this person in order to make their show of power. Not
0: the clerics that are calling for a war against the other side, the clerics that are calling for peace and reconciliation and understanding. That's the problem with Caesar. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in... Persuasive words of wisdom, again, he's hitting at philosophy. He's hitting at rhetoric. He's not interested in clever arguments or elaborate systems of intellect, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And he links the spirit and power here in this verse.
1: Contradictory to
0: wisdom. Undermining wisdom. Because how can you say... As Ezekiel says that the Lord comes in glory upon a cloud, and we hear that again repeated in the New Testament, how can something heavy, glorious, sit in a cloud? How can you link the spirit, which you can't see, can't control, can't grasp, with power? The same way you can link a poem about love with power. The same way you can link a book that gets banned with power. You look at a nuclear bomb and you look at a book, in empirical terms, you would say, if you have no understanding, the bomb... Is way more terrifying than a book when in fact the reverse is true i've never met a society that banned bombs even the japanese tried but they couldn't hold out in the end they started rebuilding their military after world war ii but i haven't seen a society that hasn't banned a book what does that tell you this is the level at which paul is hitting the romans and he's hitting them hard so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men but on the power of god
1: and let's replace faith with trust as we always do so your trust should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God you should trust in the power of God not wisdom of men because wisdom of men will explain to you very quickly that the crucifixion of Jesus shows defeat not victory it shows weakness not power I mean it's very clear when a couple of guys can kill the Son of God, how powerful is that Son of God? I mean, Jackie Chan would be more successful in that circumstance, you know? How could Jesus be so weak? I mean, it's clear, but Paul is staking his life on the power of Jesus Christ crucified. And he is pushing to reprogram your brain so you understand power in a new way. So much of his literature is trying to put this into your head trying to reprogram. I'm going to keep saying reprogramming because this is what he's trying to do. He's reprogramming you. He's undermining what you think of as power. Why? Because of what I said before. It's because of the human need to grasp at power and the way that humans understand power that begins to divide communities. They begin to divide the household. Oh, I wanted the inheritance. Well, I should get the inheritance. Dad loved you more. Dad loved me more. You know, This is all human power with human wisdom.
0: But in a Roman household, when the servants are squabbling with the children, and when there's dissension among the ranks, when the paterfamilias comes to the table and says, enough, there's peace. And what Paul is doing is saying, I'm going to bring this peace to the church, but it's not I, Paul, who's going to say enough. It is I, Paul, who is going to enunciate with authority beyond your comprehension and with force that you will resent the word of God the Father, which is enough squabbling. Be quiet and sit down, have something to eat while I read to you God's will. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The rulers of this age don't understand poetry.
1: Who are mature till ye the completed. That just its so much snarkier in Greek. Oh, those who are completed in their wisdom, those who are already graduated from the School of Wisdom, from the University of Knowledge, now these are the ones we come to preach among. Why? Because they're the ones who are most satisfied in their understanding of what wisdom is. And so those are the ones who he has to work the hardest on
0: to undermine their knowledge of power, their understanding of wisdom. He's being, as you said, snarky because we know In Romans, he refers to Abraham as being useful to God once he was as good as dead. So these who are at the end, but not dead yet, are not useful to God yet. So he's about to make them like Abraham by stripping them of their impressive, elitist, theological, philosophical
1: nonsense. Not the wisdom of the world, not the princes of the world, or the leaders of the world. It's all
0: passing away.
1: They're all passing away. So this is what I've come to speak
0: among those who are completed. But we speak God's wisdom, as he said, in a mystery, and here mystery simply means something that those who are mature in human wisdom don't understand yet, the way a child can't understand a basic math problem until you explain to them how math works. People think of mystery as something that cannot
1: be explained. No, it's something that is explained.
0: But that's what the whole point of a mystery novel is. You go, there's a puzzle, you figure it out, then you know the mystery. Paul is saying the cross is a mystery to these people because they can't accept their own defeat. So I'm going to help them unravel this puzzle. And the fact that they are so arrogant and so mature in human wisdom is going to make the unraveling that much more forceful. Right. So in this verse,
1: God presented this wisdom before all ages. And now Paul is coming and explaining it. This is the mystery. He's coming to speak wisdom among them. And he says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. If you understand mystery as something that cannot be understood, then this verse makes no sense. It would be nonsense if you were coming to speak in terms of something that cannot be understood, unless he just wants everyone to go, ooh, ah, which he doesn't want them to say ooh and ah, because if he wanted them to say ooh and ah, he could quit at chapter 2. He's going to then expound on this knowledge. I don't even want to call it mystery because the English translation is misleading. I think understanding it as revealed knowledge is probably a better way of thinking of this.
0: And the hidden, the word is apokrypto, meaning something that could be uncovered, which God has predestined. And again, this is a terrible translation because people associate predestiny and words like destiny with philosophical arguments and systems and schools. All this means is that God spoke a word, and when he spoke, his will established a reality. And in this case, he spoke before the ages. So he spoke a word before the ages to our glory, which means, and this is a very important nuance, to the glory of those who are crucified. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, the things which eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This is a heck of a statement when you're talking about the crucifixion. He's saying that God has prepared death for those who love him, which again makes no sense, humanly speaking. And what's so powerful about this section, Richard, of verses 6 through 9, is that even people who claim to understand the cross trip up when it says predestined before the ages to our glory and they start building cathedrals, which proves that just like the church in Roman Corinth, we don't understand. We see the word glory and we immediately flush the cross and start thinking
1: about our glory. It proves that they are other rulers of this age because they did not understand the wisdom of God and they took it and they thought that power is power is power and that that is what is for our glory whereas jesus christ crucified is for our glory
0: it's even worse if you say oh no no father mark he's not talking about buildings he's talking about the beauty of the human being really all of genesis was written to strip the human being of initiative power and glory and now i'm to believe that paul is saying that all of scripture was written to build up your glory you can't use a word like glory you can't talk about honor in the new testament without linking it to the cross. That is why you cannot talk about the resurrection without the crucifixion. Once you do... You are building an army, and we're back to square one, and it's going to be you versus the others. Well, if it's the glory of humanity, I mean,
1: that would contradict what he said up to this point. Because up to this point, he said, first of all, we know this wisdom is Jesus Christ crucified, and that's all he's going to preach. Okay, I don't know how that shows the beauty of the human being. He wants to say this has been the wisdom that's before all ages. So I don't see this anywhere else throughout history. I see the beauty of humanity is something that's worshipped all throughout history. So then what is he revealing that's new? Because the human being thinking of himself as the pinnacle of everything, we see that all throughout time.
0: So if that's what he were saying, it wouldn't follow in his argument. For to us, God revealed them. And the them here is the mystery, which is the understanding of the Old Testament. Through the spirit, which is the spirit of understanding, for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. But again, it's important here that you don't go off the deep end and start talking about the mystery of the depths of who God is. It's not what Paul is talking about. You don't want to feel the
1: Spirit in your depths. No, he's
0: talking about reading Torah. That's it. You have to read it and study it. And Paul's exegesis of the Torah, which he is laying out here with this practical demonstration of the power of the Torah in 1 Corinthians.
1: Right. Spirit is the thing that motivates and animates the human being. We all have a spirit. If we perform actions that are consistent with the teaching of the rulers of this age, we have a spirit of this age. If we perform actions that are consistent with God's teaching, we have the spirit of God. It's pretty straightforward that way. It's not a mystery in the mixed-up way that people talk about it. It's revealed. My actions revealed what spirit I have. That's when I'm showing, revealing God's teaching It's when I'm acting according to it, and if I'm acting according to it, it's because I have the Spirit of God. For who
0: among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Yeah, you don't know what someone is thinking until they act, and then you can tell by their actions what kind of spirit they have. It's so practical, and this is why it's such a tragedy that people emasculate a letter like 1 Corinthians by making it into something that has no bearing on reality and that no one understands They make out of something that's plain as day a real mystery unto human glory, which produces no life. For our listeners, I want you to understand that the dismantling of philosophy and the dismantling of all this philosophical talk about God is not a pet peeve of this podcast. It's an imperative of scripture because people want to lead you astray with false words when the gospel is very straightforward. And it's all about giving straightforward behavioral instruction. It's not rocket science. You do not need a degree from a seminary to understand scripture. You need time and effort and pressure to understand scripture. Anyone can do it. That is the way it works. The only reason we have to spend more effort now is because the text has been ripped from its historical context. And you don't know the original languages, most of you listening. So it takes more effort, but at the end of the day, it's not rocket science. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God, which is manifest in the instruction, just as you were saying. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak again it's the content of the teaching not in words taught by human wisdom which is not the content of the teaching but in those taught by the spirit which are inscribed in this book parenthetically combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words it's a beautiful phrase in greek but it doesn't say word and thought as it does in the english translation by the spiritual the spiritual comparing If
1: someone teaches you a word and you need to determine what that is, you know, which things we speak, what we're teaching, if you want to understand if they're spiritual, if it's coming from the Spirit, you have to compare them to the spiritual things, which are Scripture. The only way that you can judge whether something is Scriptural is according to Scripture, because you aren't allowed to just say, yeah, but Father, that's not practical. That's irrelevant. Whether you think it's practical or not is really because you're using a worldly framework to compare the spiritual
0: things. It's a disaster. This translation is a disaster because people will come and say, but Father Mark, am I having spiritual thoughts? What are the spiritual words? And then they start thinking about this whole philosophical whatever, whatever. whatever. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying that you are judged by the text. Right.
1: Which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom. So he's saying... We're not saying these things by human wisdom, okay? So guess what? It's not going to make sense according to human wisdom.
0: Oh, but Father, that's not practical. Exactly. He's saying you're comparing apples and oranges. Right. It's a very beautiful, simple phrase. You're comparing apples and oranges. You need to go apples to apples. End of subject. Spiritual things by spiritual things. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, because he's not comparing apples to apples, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He doesn't understand because he's thinking in terms of oranges. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Now he's telling you just because what I'm saying doesn't make sense to you, you have no right to judge me because you're not spiritual. You are in no position to judge what I'm saying because you don't understand the law and the prophets, and they are not your reference point. So do not raise your hand in the classroom. I'm not interested in what you think about what I'm saying, and I don't want your feedback at the end of the session, because you're clueless. No, I mean, it's, he can tell by your actions that you're not spiritual. If you want to raise your hand
1: and the professor says, uh, you know, you got a B- on your last quiz, and now you're
0: going to tell me? I saw your quiz. Well, I think you your, don't know. I think your teaching style, uh, Professor Benton, is, it's a little offensive to me. I don't like your approach. I think if your approach were different, I would have gotten a B B+. No! The only way you get a B-plus is if you study harder and know what you're talking about. Until then, all of your talk about my style and my approach is vain talk. Because how can you evaluate something you don't understand? That's what Paul is saying. And here was another beautiful translation issue that you discovered, Richard. I want you to talk about this in verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him but we have the mind of Christ, but there's a problem with this translation. Right.
1: The actual Greek says, who has known the mind of the Lord, which he will instruct him. He's trying to teach the mind of the Lord. It's not in order that he instructs him. It's who knew what God was trying to teach. That's the only point that matters. Is the person teaching the will of God? That's all that matters.
0: So the difference between that and which in verse 16 is a bit like Mark Twain's famous saying that there's a difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. There's a big difference in the change of one word because now verse 16 makes sense relative to verse 15. He's saying, look, you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand the one who wrote the Bible. So how are you gonna tell him what to do? How are you gonna evaluate him? and by extension since i'm the one bringing to you the mind of the bible which is the understanding the teaching how are you going to evaluate me this is what we have the mind of christ and here news again once you talk about this outside the context of the biblical text you're building an idol period in the news when they say sources say what does it mean to say sources say which source how many sources Do they all agree what is this magical thing out there or when people are discussing issues in the church they say the fathers well what does that mean because i can put 10 fathers together and i can show you 10 different opinions on the same subject so what do you mean the fathers and then they use the mind of christ this way the church has the mind of christ Well, what does that mean for who is known the
1: mind of the lord it's interesting because he goes from mind of the lord to the mind of christ Well, how does he do that? How does he go from mind of the Lord to the mind of Christ? Well, by the one thing that he preaches, which is Christ crucified. So when he says Christ, it's shortening of Jesus Christ crucified. If you want to know the mind of the Lord, it's by understanding Christ crucified. But guess what? I know you don't understand Christ crucified because I can tell by your actions that you do not have the spirit of God. And I do have the Spirit of God. That's why it's manifested in the suffering that I go through. So that proves to you that I have the Spirit of God, which means I understand
0: what Scripture is saying. Paul is taking the fleshly elitist in the church in Roman Corinth, and he is putting them up against the spiritual and dismantling them so that they would become spiritual. In practical terms, the canon which he is shoving them up against is the canon of the teaching. It's important to keep emphasizing this because Paul is emphasizing this. This emphasis on the teaching, this emphasis, when we say the text, the text, the text, the word text is a modern word. But this ultimately is what Paul is saying, that there is a canon, there is a rule, there is a will that is spiritual. And this is the only way out for you is to repeatedly be forced to conform to this spiritual rule, which is in the actual inscriptions on this page.
1: He has to set up his authority so you understand how his authority works relative to scripture. And so the argument that he runs is that, okay, you don't understand power. I'm here to reprogram you to understand power correctly. My only reference is Jesus Christ crucified. Which is the content of the scroll. Which is the content of the entire scroll because he says this is a mystery from the beginning. And how do we know the mystery from the beginning? It's because it's been in scripture all this time. Okay? So we've had it all along here. You can tell that I follow this, and he'll be talking about the suffering that he goes through in the flesh, which demonstrates his spirit of God that he has in him. And how does he have the spirit of God in him? Is because he knows the mind of God, because he knows the mind of Christ, who's the one who's crucified. This is how he's able to instruct them. And he says, guess what? But you are not allowed to instruct me, to judge me, to compare me because all you have in your brain is what you learn from all the leaders of this world. All the leaders of this world are filled with the
0: spirit of this world which leads to death and is not scriptural. And this is why Jesus will say later in the Gospels, the disciple is not above his master. This is exactly the point, it's Pauline. If you start going down the path of ontology and personality, you're going to have a nervous breakdown because you're going to tell me about all the teachers that were so terrible when you're... I don't care about your experience that where you didn't like your teachers and you had a crisis because they were mean to you or unsympathetic or whatever story you invent to bolster your sense of being a victim. That's not the point here. The point is that those who are entrapped and ensnared by lies can only be saved by the authority of wisdom. At the end of the day... The authority of wisdom is our hope. It's the only thing that can break the snare of falsehood, period. You can't puzzle your way out of that snare. So Paul is just coming in and he is teaching like a Roman patrician because in practical terms, it works and it's effective. And it's the way God in the Old Testament orders his household. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank Rippen. you, Father.